Hello, you're listening to Sarah Archer and episode 77 of the Speaking Club podcast. At the time of recording, it's Pride season around the world, and I wanted to take the time to recognise the personal strength and resilience that many LGBTQI people have to conjure up every day just to be true to themselves. Welcome to the Speaking Club podcast, because making them laugh is the secret sauce to your speaking, pitching, and business success. And now your host, Sarah Archer. Hi there, and welcome to the show. Well, my guest today, Anthony Taylor, has taken many years to discover what makes him happy. Like many of us, he got on that treadmill of money and material things, but found himself unfulfilled and unhappy. But a few decades later, he did find his calling as a performance and resilience coach. And on this show, we talk about why being able to build resilience is so important today. Anthony shares some great tips for recognising you know, when you have a problem and for overcoming this sort of emotional snapping that many people suffer from as a result of the pressures of the modern world. And Anthony is also sharing why he decided he needed to up his own performance in the area of public speaking, how he did it, and what happened as a result. Cool. Let's go over to the interview. Welcome to the Speaking Club, Anthony Taylor. Thank you very much for having me. It's fab to be here. I'm looking forward to this. I'm going to talk a little bit later about how we came to know each other. Yes. But I'm really interested for you to share with the audience your sort of journey to how you got to what you do today. Right, okay. The journey, crikey. Okay, well, the journey began um, about two years into a four-year degree when I was a bit fed up with education. I've never been hugely academic and I was a bit bored and wanted to do something different. I wanted to find my way. I was doing a business degree. So I walked out after two years. I got my HND, which actually stands for having a degree. Um, <laughs> Uh, so I, got, I did that and then uh, I got introduced to network marketing at that time and in particular the likes of Zig Ziglar and, and uh, Brian Tracy and other personal development people. So I set up a network marketing business and, and I did okay at it for about 18 months. Uh, paid off my student loans, paid my parents rent, then a car, all that kind of stuff. I did up doing okay with it and then you know, I was always attached to the money and I wanted to be the money and all the rest of it. Um, and though I wasn't really clear about what my values and my goals were. So after about 18 months, I got a bit fed up and a bit disenchanted with what I perceive as my lack of progress. And then somebody said, oh, you'd be good at PR. You've got the gift of the gab and good with people. Oh, okay. So I went, next thing I know, I'm in the world of PR, a bit like Ad Fab. Uh, and, and I did okay at that. And within three years, I'd gone down to an agency in London from Manchester, um, got promoted, to, I think, three times and, and doubled my starting salary and and it's just great. And then within about three or four, or four years, I was bored out of my tree, Sarah. And I remember coming back home to my parents one weekend back in, in Saddleworth in, in the, outside Manchester and going out for dinner with them saying, you know, I'm just so frustrated. I get to the end of the week and I've done 55 hours at this darn desk. Um, and I'm just, what the heck have I got to show for it? And I felt really sort of disillusioned with it. And mum said, you know, we've seen it in you for a while. Uh, you, you just, we needed to wait for you to recognise that that's what you wanted to do um, and, and to come across that. So I ended up thinking, right, I need to go and do something with a bit more purpose. And I still wasn't really clear on my values. And I think it was perhaps a lack of maturity and, and awareness. So I had some grandiose ideas. I wanted to go off mind clearing. 
of all things. And, and the, the reason behind that was I just thought, you know, this would just be so different from what I've been doing before. And to get to the end of the week and maybe be able to look at it and think, you know, there's an acre of land now and some kids can go kick a football around on a weekend without having their legs blown off. Or some parents can go and plant some crops without orphaning their kids. And anyway, the Mines Advisory Group said no, because I was not military, I had no experience. Uh, and about that time, I'd gone out for dinner with an ex-girlfriend in London whose dad was a QC and... and uh, fairly well known and a, a really successful businessman. And about two o'clock in the morning that night, I got a call from him saying, I've got a, an opportunity for you. Do you want to come out to the Caribbean and try and turn around this publishing company? It's going down the tubes uh, and I need someone I can trust. And within three two months, I found myself out in the Caribbean um, trying to turn around this publishing company, which I did and, and it was great. Got married, met a Canadian girl out there, came back to the UK and fell back into what I know, which was PR again. Uh, and did that for, best part of 10 years got divorced in that time sadly um, and then about age 40 and my boss came in and said oh can I have a quick word with you in my office so I wandered in and he said um, by the way I'm making you redundant um, pack your desk we'll pay you you know send you a check in the post goodbye and I was like what the heck so I was a single dad at the time I had two kids but I knew that going into that point in the last two or three months I'd really been not happy and you know, performance was fine, but I just, it was hard work going to work every day and I just wasn't up for it. So I thought, you know, I've just got to take some time out to figure out what the heck is it I really want to do with my life. So it took me three months of literally sort of ambling around, which was when given the debt housing, which was a bit scary to be honest. But it gave me the time to figure out that actually it was back to helping people. And I guess because of my own insecurities and, and my own uh, shortcomings in it, with me as a person and going through my sports career and my business career, helping people achieve more than they thought themselves capable of really interested me. So focusing on that mental toughness, that resilience, that personal development. So that's what I've been doing for the last seven years or so. You mentioned sports career. What's that? I don't know about that. Well, I say sports career. What I mean by that is amateur sports career. So I've always been pretty sporty. I've played both rugby league and rugby union to a fairly high amateur standard. I've run cross country for my county and athletics. Um, I've boxed, I've done a variety of things. And so there's been times when, and as you know, I'm not exactly the biggest physical specimen, <laughs> five foot six uh, uh, in my platforms. Uh, and But I have never really allowed that to hold me back. But there have been instances when the mental side of the game sort of let me down a bit. And I remember sort of, you know, for want of a better word, choking under pressure and, and, and all those other things, and in times succeeding. So I've always been fascinated by the psychology of performance and uh, and then coupled that with seeing people go through tough times in their personal life and their career and, and being able to deal with that, that's what really motivated me. So about seven, eight years ago, started on this second career, uh, working in personal development, training and coaching around resilience and mental toughness. And, and yeah, I've been doing that for the last seven years now. Cool. I mean, this is a growing area, isn't it? There is a, an issue going on in society at the moment, people sort of having trouble coping with life today. I mean, why do you think what you teach and coach is important right now? I think for those reasons that you've suggested, so there's two elements to what I do. There's the mental toughness resilience side, and then there's the mental health stuff. I think there's a real reason for it because we are in unprecedented times in terms of the transition away from traditional working practices to a more gig economy 
the uncertainty that that's bringing, the transitioning with the rise of social media and smartphones, the impacts that's having on us as individuals, how that feeds into our, our insecurities and our two psychological causes of, of all stress, the worry about the future, the prevalence of news, and all these things are creating this perfect storm that are really sapping people's personal resilience. The lack of sleep, the different diet, there's a maelstrom of different things that are coming together. I think for me, you know, the past, you know, we've just done the D-Day thing, haven't we? And I cannot imagine what life must have been like for those people landing on the beaches or to be bombed in the blitz. But I think it was a different kind of stress. And as, as traumatic as that must have been, and I, and I don't know how I would have coped in those days, I think the, the challenges facing us today are different but no less demanding in their own way. And so I think that they, you know, bio, biologically, we are not designed to perform or be switched on as much as we are every day. Human beings are designed to have periods of rest and, and then stress and rest and stress and rest. And we're not getting that. So there's just a maelstrom of different things all coming together, all having an impact. One of my clients is a colon hydrotherapist, hoping to get her on the show. And we were preparing stuff for her talk. And she was telling me how this is probably something that crosses into your world. She was talking about Usain Bolt and being ready that as fight or flight, that, you know, ready for the race. And then Homer Simpson being really sort of laid back. And like you say, so there's that peak performance rest. But she was saying today, we are constantly in between the two or not switching off completely, which mm. is messing up certainly our digestion and our bodily health, as well as our mental health is that is that something you kind of come across in the work that you do yeah very much and it's something i try and you know i'm aware of it when i don't get it together myself or when i allow things to, to myself mm. and even though i teach this stuff you know i'm a human being i've got challenges i've got a you know a home life with four children and, and stepchildren and, and a dog and trying to run a business and my partner has a very busy job with a long commute as well so we've got like many people juggling those challenges but yeah, you're absolutely right. So it can be difficult to really switch off yeah. and to have that rest time, uh, even within in, in the scope of one day. So finding those moments in a day when you can just have five minutes just to switch off and relax and change your pace, go out for a little bit of fresh air. And the basics that you know people know about, the macro resilience, the, you know, the eating well, the hydration, the little bit of exercise, all those things build up. But there's also, I think, a need for what I call micro resilience being able to do things multiple times in the day that just give you that breathing space. Because if you think about how an athlete trains, you know, they train really hard, they work out, they're actually breaking down the muscles at that point and the muscles get stronger and more build more endurance or get bigger in the rest periods. So mm -hmm. they break down during the training and the rest is where the growth happens. We don't allow for that growth and recuperation. And I think that's the problem is we're running a flat out all day long and then crashing at night time. It's often full of stimulants like caffeine and, and other things and sugar and sweets and so on to get through the day. And then it starts all over again six hours later. So you bring all those things together. It's no wonder that people's emotional, physical, spiritual and mental resilience is being challenged. And how does this play out? What sort of patterns or common problems are you seeing in the people that you work with? So we can see what the issues are in a sense. How do they play out in terms of symptoms in people's lives that you might get involved with? As symptoms are, you know, on a personal level, it can be poor diet choices, lack of sleep, insomnia, um, irritability, aggression, tears, frustration, all those kind of signs and symptoms when people's stress buckets start to overflow and we get that emotional snapping and poor choices around 
coping factors, so we turn to drink quite a lot or, or overeating. In the workplace, we see it in terms of obviously, the obvious one is sickness absence, but just general underperformance. You know, the ability, performance in our modern day workplace is about the ability to concentrate. And if we can't concentrate because our minds aren't able to, we've only got a finite amount of energy, emotional, mental energy, or we've got that many distractions, then performance is compromised. So organizations are coming and saying, you know, we've got all these people and really we should be getting more performance, mm. ask them more work, more whatever it might be. Um, and it's only when we start to unpick it that we see that actually it's because they're having to go to their well of personal resilience so often in the day that there isn't that much left over to do the job. And do you work with people on a one-to-one basis as well? I do work with people on a one-to-one basis. A bulk of my time, I have a small amount of client roster on a one-to-one basis. A bulk of my time is working with organizations. So I do a lot of, you know, everything from half day to multiple day training. Mm-hmm. I am developing some online resources as well, because I would like to try and scale up my work mm-hmm. with individuals. And obviously the best way to do that is through a combination of online and, and some sort of group work as well, Facebook group or something like that. And when you're coaching the individuals, what sort of issues are they coming to you with? Is it, is it around performance or confidence or what sort of things are they presenting? All of those, to be honest. I mean, I'm talking with uh, somebody at the minute who runs an accountancy business um, and she's feeling quite challenged in, in that sense uh, on a number of levels, the emotional, the mental and, and the spiritual. Some of it's around confidence, some of it's around self-worth and esteem, some of it's around just the emotional challenges that people are, are facing and therefore how they deal with them. A classic example was I was working with a lady in a, in a group setting in an organisation and she was really stressed and she was saying that the problem was, was she had a great relationship with her boss, but she was witnessing her boss engage in some quite bullying behaviours with the rest of her teammates. Mm. And that just didn't sit well with it. It was going against her values in terms of fairness and honesty and, and respect and those things. To the point where she said, the moment I consciously awake before I've even opened my eyes, I feel physically sick and I'm shaking before I come to work and I, I just feel so horrendous and I'm not, I'm not sleeping at night. She said, I'm either going to have another breakdown because she'd had some challenges in the past or I'm going to leave. And actually, I've looked at, at leaving already. I've got my CV out. So I spent some time with her outside of that workshop and just exploring and unpicking that. And she was then able to go and deal with that um, and, and address the issues. But it was when she was, you know, she was behaving and living in a way that was going against her values that was so eroding and impacting on her confidence, on her self-esteem and, and her physical and mental health. Yeah, there is this incongruence, isn't it? It does affect us if we're forced into living a life that doesn't align with our values and our beliefs and i know you talk about this yes cognitive dissonance is that that's the one that's the one we talked about that before yeah it's an issue isn't it and thrown into the mix with everything else that can cause some big problems it causes some huge problems and i think people intrinsically know when they're not but it's hard sometimes to articulate it Mm. they're not clear about their values and that's sometimes where i can help clients the most is actually even just helping them find out and explore what their values are what they mean and then they start to get some realizations that actually, you know, I'm not living in accordance with those or, you know, I'm going against them or this or that and the other. And it doesn't have to mean that they suddenly radically change jobs and, and change their career, but just being more aware of them will allow them because those values are our framework. They become our, our moral compass, if you like, They're the way that we decide the decisions we make about how we deal with people, how we deal with the stresses and challenges that we face. Um, so when we've got clarity on those, then that decision making becomes easier. 
but do you find it does cause people to have you know when you work with them a, a big change in their lives presumably if things are completely awry is that something that happens it can do so i've got a couple of clients coming up i've been coaching a man and a wife team recently and he uh was in a career that he, I coached him before and he got a new job and then he ran me up about six months later and said something's still off so we had some more sessions and it basically led to him leaving that longer and actually I'm just not living what I'm meant to be doing and, it, and it's really dragging me down and now he's absolutely flying he got he got a you know three months sort of gardening leave thing and he's absolutely flying you know he's really engaging what he's doing he's starting to make it work uh, and on the back of that, his his wife came to me and had a session. Now, she hasn't chosen to change her career, but what we were able to do with those couple of sessions has just helped her clarify her values enough and what she's doing that she's now got a different mindset to work. That means she's staying in that employment and she's quite and she's happier. So it doesn't it doesn't mean that automatically there's going to be a big life shift. For some, they may want that. Yeah. Um, but for others, it might actually just be about reframing yes. what they're doing at the minute. Yeah, that's really important as well because you can't just pack it in sometimes. You, need, no. you know, we've all got responsibilities and stuff. You can't just sort of like those are the people who I'm off. Now, I know you've got a book coming out soon. Can you mm. tell me a bit about that? What it is, what you did to do it? That'd be really cool. Yeah, well, I've got two. Well, the one that's going to come out first is it's called uh, Tips from the Top How to Successfully Navigate Middle Management. And I was at a professional speaking event I'd gone to, and this idea sort of popped into my head. And what I've done is interviewed 25 senior business people, men and women from around the world. You know, I've got the likes of the former CEO of Starbucks UK, now CEO of Costcutter. I've got a director from Sainsbury's Argos and, and other people, some big brand names, about their experiences of, of going through middle management, what helped them get through and be successful, and have some of the character traits and things. So that's coming out first. At the same time, because you know, it's not like I didn't have anything else to do, I decided to write a book called 60 Minute Guide to Personal Resilience. Clues in the title, uh, you can read it in 60 minutes. There's some exercises that will take people longer, but it's what I I felt to be after doing this for a number of years now, the best but leanest framework to be able to develop your personal resilience. And there's so much information out there, but it can become a bit like diet industry really. It's almost overwhelming in what you should be doing. But if I, if I can pare it down to a framework of these key things that will help, if you want to go and add to learning, that's great. But actually these things will improve your resilience. So that's half written. Um, and I decided I was doing too much. So that's parked until I've got this tips from the top book out. And what sort of insights have you got from the interviews that you've had? Are there, I mean, I want to talk about the tips for confidence and resilience. That's a couple from the book that's going to be coming out on the 60 Minutes stuff. But what is there anything coming through, like a golden thread or something from the other book, the first book, that you, you can share with us? I decided to ask them the same nine questions, which on the face of it might be quite limited. And I was a bit nervous, but we'll see how it goes. But actually, I've been really surprised by the wealth of experience and insight that people have been willing to share with that. I think the common thing coming out of it, if it caps it in the upside, it's around what well, people tend to turn the soft skills, but actually I think it's better termed essential skills. And particularly around knowing yourself, knowing yourself and knowing about your true worth and being able to influence other people. And I don't mean influence in a kind of Machiavellian way, but really listening and understanding other people. The breadth of stories that comes out is, is quite fascinating um, and also the fondness with which one of the things I asked was who's the best boss you've ever had and why and the fondness with which people have been able to talk about some of the people that had a big impact on their lives and why 
um, is really interesting. So for me, I guess what it comes down to, you know, we're working in a time where there's so much technological change, the pace of change, you know, there's technical skills, the coding, the computer stuff, all the rest of it. But actually, if you aren't able to lead, to have self-mastery and self-awareness, and you aren't able to communicate and, and influence other people effectively, you will not achieve what you could do in your, your career. And by achieve, I don't necessarily mean getting to the top. I know that that's about navigating middle management, but actually it could equally just be about maintaining your career. Uh, you know, in a time when actually we are faced with a dwindling resource and these challenges to, to lifetime careers, just the ability to even stay in middle management successfully and have a job well into your 50s and 60s is likely to be a definition of success, not necessarily making it to being a chief exec or something. And you mentioned self-mastery. How would you define that? What, what do you mean by that? Okay, that's good. Interesting word about self I think self-mastery comes down to really knowing yourself in terms of your identity, your self-worth, and knowing enough about yourself to be able to predict and manage your behaviours. So having that discipline, choosing, we all have a choice whatever circumstance in life comes down to. So it's a bit like the stoic philosophy around, you know, when you master yourself and your own perceptions and your own, then actually you have, you choose how you allow other things to affect you or not. So total self-mastery to me would be the ability to completely choose my emotions in any circumstances right therefore choose the emotions most appropriate to whatever my goals are and, and i'm a long way from that yet <laughs> i'm so far away from that yet <laughs> yeah, I, I could tell how far away from self-mastery i am when i have a when i have a ding dong in the car with another driver <laughs> that's how i know yeah absolutely well, I, I, 20 minutes ago i was having i had a you know we just talked about some of the challenges today the quirky day that i've had and, uh, and my self-mastery failed when I found a refresher left over from a training course. I just snapped that even though I meant to try to eat better. Oh, one refresher won't hurt. No. <laughs> oh, cool. Okay. So for anyone that is struggling with confidence and resilience and, and perhaps self-mastery, what are the top three tips that you would give them? Uh, top three tips I'd Tim. Tim's of res- I think the first thing is to be clear about and work on our, who we are as a person. And I, and I say this, you know, we talked about this in the talk that I just gave that you helped coach me with last week around, you know, our, our identity. And the problem is ever since from the moment we were born, whether you're a son or a daughter, it doesn't really matter. We've, we've a society and the way we've been brought up has allowed us to uh, in, that our role performance as a son or a daughter or as a friend or a brother, whatever that might be, to be synonymous with our identity. And actually, there needs to be a Chinese war. Who we are as an individual, we need to see ourselves as a perfect tent because when we do that, uh, then actually our performance in any of those roles, whether it's a brother, a sister, a lover, a mother, a father, that will always. You know, we'll have good days and bad days, we'll do well, we'll do not so well. But if we allow performance in those to impact on the self-worth we feel, then we're only going to be able to perform at a certain, certain level. And we see this a lot in a lot of people. So people who have a, a lower, even a middle self-esteem value, you know, 10 is perfect. They score themselves between, say, a 4 or 6 or 7. You can never consistently outperform your self-image. If you perceive yourself, your value as a human being is only being a 4 or 5 or 6 out of 10 you'll only ever be able to perform about plus or minus whatever score that is. So we need to work on our self-talk and we need to work on our, our value that we are as a human being, as a person, 
outside of any role success or failure we may have. And when we do that, then that creates true self-esteem and self-worth, and that will buffer you from any role failure. So if I get up last week and, and fluff my talk and, and ummed and ahed and stammered and or whatever, you know, that performance in that role should not have impacted or would not have impacted on my value as a human being. And we get a lot of our beliefs as well about who we are and what we're capable of from our family and friends. Mm -hmm. So being aware of our identity, our self-beliefs and where they've come from is really important. And taking the time to master that self-talk because so many of us, we all do it. You know, we all talk to ourselves so often uh, every day and about 80% of it, I'm going to believe, is, is negative. Mm. Um, you know, even get up in the mirror and you think, oh, God, I look so tired in the morning. Whereas actually what we're saying is, oh, God, I look great today. <laughs> um, but, you know, but we don't. We tend to, everything can be quite negative. Or you think, oh, I've forgotten that, you idiot. I can't believe you've done that. Or it's that self-talk that just over time erodes our confidence yeah. and our esteem. And then I think so often we don't allow ourselves to congratulate ourselves for a job well done. So this brings on to confidence. It's not possible to get confident without doing what it is you want to be confident at first. Yeah. The confidence comes afterwards. You've got to do it first. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I'm a lot more confident now after last week, having done last week. Mm. I'll be honest, I was a bag of nerves before I stood up in front of that room. There's 200 people. I'd never spoken to that many people. Well, we're going to come on to that, yeah. yeah. So, but now, if I had to do it again next week, I'd be a lot more confident because I've done it. But it's only by going through it, it's only controlling the nerves and, and doing it that we build up that confidence. But as a society, and I think Americans are a bit better than this than we are, than we are, we need to celebrate our successes more. We need to give ourselves that pat on the back. But we're told, oh, don't do that. And it's not about being big-headed and egotistical, but it's about recognising, you know what, I've done a bloody good job today. Oh, actually, I'm quite pleased with the way that's gone. And, and recognising that. Um, yeah, because it's normally about 99% negative and then very rarely do we actually pat ourselves on the back. Absolutely. And I do a lot of work with organisations, individuals who are helping them identify like, really powerful CVs. And the process I take them through really gets them to strip back their career. So it takes about between four to eight hours to go through this process, which puts some people off. But the value that comes with it is not so much the CV at the end, it's the confidence that people have got by going through the process. And they, every single time I do it, without fail, the client says, God, you know, I've forgotten about that stuff. Well, I've really undersold that. I'm really proud of what I did there. Or yeah, I've got all these transferable assets that I wasn't really aware of because we're so good at hiding our light under a bushel. And so, yeah. Or at actually recognizing the qualities and the skills and things that we do have. So my role is just to help people shine a light on those and, and get to see those, those gems that they've got. So first of all, look at how you're valuing yourself. Yeah, look at your identity. Be really clear about that. What do you score yourself out of 10? And then secondly, um, manage yourself, talk and be aware of your beliefs. Was that, was that sort of the same thing or? Yeah. So I think self-talk follows on from the beliefs. You know, yeah. you, you, when we grow up, we would have taken on board our parents' limiting beliefs, insecurities and fears and those kind of things you just do. Yes. You, know, you hear that so many times in parents. Just be aware when you see people out and about the way they talk to their children. You know, the children are like sponges, we absorb everything and that stays. Greatest quote I came across is, children are like wet cement, whatever lands on them makes an impression. Ah, oh, I like that. And it does, and it stays there. Our friends as well, their limiting beliefs, their insecurities, their fears will play on people as well. So I'm doing a, a workshop this week 
and I'm saying to people in it, the going through outplacement, um, be aware of your cheerleaders because your cheerleaders will not be necessarily the ones that you think they are. You know, your friends and even your family might not be your best cheerleaders. Yes. For a whole bunch of reasons. Maybe because actually, if you're successful, then they'll feel a bit more like a failure. So they, so we just need to be aware of where these beliefs come from. Yeah. And then managing our self-talk around it. Yeah. And then the last one I think you said was pat yourself on the back a bit more. Yeah. Recognize your successes. Recognize when you've done a good job, the qualities it took to do that good job. And don't be shy about it. It doesn't mean you have to become egotistical and big-headed. That's different. But you have to just recognize and value what you've done or what you've brought or whatever it might be and just acknowledge that. And then I think that's so up. important. I mean, I always say to, you know, it's one of the things I say to clients as well. If you don't believe in yourself, who else is going to? You've got to act like you did. And yes. then the confidence comes. And it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, we talked, uh, I talked about this in the talk in terms of there's a lot of research that shows that men only feel like they need to know how to do 50% of a job yes. before they apply for it. Women, for some strange reason, feel like they need to be able to do 90 or 100% of a job. Yeah. Um, and it's when I help people understand and, and shine a light on what their success is in the past and what qualities and skills they've got, they start to go, oh, yeah, hang on a minute. And you can see them sit back and their shoulders go back and their chin goes up a bit and they, they talk with more confidence. Um, it's all there. It's just yeah. that we don't spend the time to acknowledge it and appreciate it. And also because what comes easy to us often doesn't come easy to other people, but we don't value it because it comes easy to us. I think yes. that's another dimension for this that yes. you're talking about. Yeah, and you can spot that with people. You give them a compliment. You go, no, no, really. It's just <laughs> yeah, my mum was a bugger for that. You know, it's, oh, that, mum, that tasted, because she was a fantastic cook. She was Italian-Irish, great cook. Oh, mum, that tastes amazing. Oh, well, it's just something I had in the cupboard. And I just do it. Just say thank you. Yeah. Say thank you very much. And, and feel a little glow inside that says, oh, yeah. Get that little glow. Yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. Thanks for those. That's really, really good. And now... We came into contact with each other because you've been doing speaking in terms of workshops, you've done talks before, but now you're getting more requests to speak. Why did you feel, because I think there may be some people in a similar position that perhaps just go and have a go without getting any coaching. Why did you feel you needed to get some coaching? Because you, you know, you're, you're great, you talk very well, you're articulate. What was it that prompted you to do it? Thank you very much for the compliments. What it was... Um, I always want to try and be the best that I can be. Mm. Um, I want to make sure that if I'm doing some work for clients that I'm delivering the best job. And I, I'd done so, you know, I've done a lot of workshops, that's the bread and butter stuff. So I'm really comfortable about standing up to 40, 50 people. And then it was about a year ago last January, so 18 months now. And then a friend of mine who's another speaking coach, I want to claim, invited me to come along to a meetup with Pigos. It's about 50, 60 people and do a talk for 10 minutes. TED style talk for 10 minutes so I did that but I suddenly found myself feeling incredibly nervous um taking a lot not doing as well a job as I would have wanted to mm. um and then I thought crikey if I don't stand up in front of 200 people I and that suddenly that brought home to me that actually speaking in front of workshops is a very different from delivering a 30 minute keynote yeah. not standing in front of a lecture which I didn't want to do and being able to inspire and motivate people. And that's the message I wanted to get across. I wanted to give them real value, but I wanted to leave them feeling motivated and inspired. So it suddenly occurred to me, you know, that's a different kettle of fish. And actually, I know the power of coaching. Um, I know I had it in me. I just needed someone to really help me refine that and get better at it. So I just searched up podcasts. 
um, on speaking and came across yours and loved your style and everything else and loved the content of them, that I think I listened to every single one you've done back to back over the course of about four weeks in the car. Um, and then I thought, right, I know, I know who I need to call. I wonder if you can sort of break it down for people how you prepared for this talk, because it was a big talk at a conference, 200 people, fancy conference. Oh, yeah, it was at the Hilton Hotel in Deansgate in Manchester. It was the big, biggest room there. So I came into doing the talk with a fairly good idea about what I wanted to say, the story, but I knew it wasn't refined. And so one of the first things we did was we sat down, we looked at the structure of it, wasn't it? And what I really enjoyed about working with you was, you know, we looked at the structure in that first session. You gave me some fantastic tools and, and feedback on that. Um, you really helped me clarify, get that clarity about actually what was I trying to say? What was I meaning at this point? What was I meaning at that point? Could you say this this way? And then I had the time between sessions. So I had to do a lot of time in between practicing and crafting and practicing and crafting and really honing it down. Um, and then each session was brilliant and we, we segmented it. So we, we worked on the start and then you gave me some fantastic feedback about that. Being able to review the videos in our sessions again really helped because sometimes you forget things. So the way I did it was uh, we'd have a session and then I'd review the tape uh, video about the next day. Ah, yes, this, that and the other. I'd work it over my head, tweak the speech, practice again and just kept going through that process to the point where... I was then able to do the last one to you on our last session and felt like at that point I was about 80% of the way, 85% of the way there. And that last 15 was about me just rehearse, rehearse, rehearse. So overall, we spent six hours, I think, just a little bit less on, on sessions. And I probably spent uh, another 12 hours on top of that practicing rehearsing. Is that different to what you would have done before, do you think? Um, yes. Yeah, so if I, you know, if I'm doing a workshop, I don't, you know, I know the material, I've designed the material, I've, I've done it several times. I don't tend to I'll go through it in my head on the train down or in the car, but I, you know, I go with the flow a bit more. Um, but I really wanted to give a, a really polished performance on at that particular, you know, on that occasion. Um, so I mean I'm I've no doubt that as I get better at this. I get to the point where it won't take me anything like that time. You know, the confidence will grow. I feel if I had to do the same talk next week, I would probably only rehearse it a couple of times and I'd get up and deliver it even better again. So again, the confidence builds from doing it. And I think one of the biggest things, certainly that I felt you, you got as an aha was up the front thinking about the audience. Because we, we, that was a sort of fairly big change, I think, from what, you know, I mean, you, you thought about it, but perhaps... We, we sort of went a bit deeper on who was there and what they were thinking and all that good stuff. Was that something you felt was, was a, a bit of a change or, or perhaps you hadn't considered it as much before? Yes, I think what you allowed me to do or you helped me do was consider that even more. So I, I tried to consider the audience, but I think what the, the, the beauty about working with a coach is they, they can sometimes see things that you can't. And you know, with your skills and your experience, you help me see things or do things in a way that I wouldn't have done on my own. I just wouldn't have had that thought process. So I think I was able to impart some much more impactful stories that brought to life the point I was trying to make. Um, so for me, the, you know, I had this one overarching theme, this kernel that you talk about, and then we helped identify three quite powerful stories, I think, that helped illustrate three key points I was trying to make. And I think I probably would have lacked a little bit of insight to know what were really powerful stories and perhaps actually the confidence to share them. 
And what you helped me break down was actually, no, no, you need to. And actually, what you nailed, you were able to help me do was nail down what I wanted to say more concisely. Mm. So I think I would have been a little bit more verbose with my language, which would have lost some of the impact. Whereas actually, what we're able to do was, was trim it down to really every word mattered. Yeah. And so how did it go? How did you feel? How did you feel on spit like before? How did you feel on stage? And what did people say to you after? Um, it went really well. Uh, I'm going to be, uh, I'm going to lose all airs and graces here. I'm dead honest with the listeners because if there's anyone out there like me, I want to be warts and all about it. So I got there in plenty of time. I felt really confident in a lot of visualization, a lot of practice. And I made sure I got there really early. So I got a chance to go up on the stage, wear the microphone, get used to how that feels around your head because it is different when yes. you've done that for the first time. And I practiced the opening two or three sentences before anyone else got in the room, so I could feel like I could do that. Felt in a really good place, really relaxed, until about three or four minutes before I was due on, I suddenly realised the other speaker was coming to her close. And out of nowhere, it was, oh, the butterflies came. And they were not flying in formation. I mean, I was really, my mouth dried up, I could feel my heart starting to pound, I thought, right, I know what's going on here. So I did a couple of the in-the-moment stress reduction techniques that I share with people in the workshops, and that really helped. Because I really was really nervous just before I got up on stage, to the point where I was thinking, I'm going to really choke here. Oh, my God. So I, I did practice a couple of these techniques. They got me to the, they dropped the nerves from a 10 out of 10 down to about a 7 out of 10. Um, and then I took the advice that you gave me, which is literally I strode up on stage and just stood there and looked at the audience for a, a few moments picked out a couple of friendly faces at various points around the room and then actually spoke to them. Mm -hmm. and, and that helped me because I'm making a human connection with somebody. So yeah. it suddenly felt like I'm not talking to 200 people. I'm talking to three people, one to the left, one to the middle and one to the right. Yeah. And then once I got warmed up within the first couple of minutes, then the confidence came flooding in. And then I started to speak to more people around the room. So, yeah, so it seemed to go really well. Um, I almost wanted to jump up and do it again straight off the bat because <laughs> I've got this. And I got some really lovely feedback from people. Uh, the lady who'd opened the session said that she was, in, you know, I had her in tears. Uh, and the three or four other people came up to me and said that was really moving and, and inspiring and actually brought me to tears. And, and I've, you know, uh, a big construction company has been in touch since and, is asking me to go down to their conference in July and speak speak there. So uh, I must have done something like. Oh, sure you did. Yeah, definitely. But that's the thing. I think what you know, just to wrap this up, because I don't want to labour the point, but it's really important. One of the things you wanted to do was was hold the stage and hold the audience in the palm of your hands, and that does start right when you get out on stage, just to take that moment to let them focus on you, which you did really well. And then it is a conversation. You know, we, so many people go into presenter mode. And I think the first time we had a session, you did. Oh, yes, absolutely. Yes, that's how you put it, wasn't it? Presenter mode. Yeah. And I suddenly realised the difference between being in presenter mode and, and doing it that way. Yeah. So it is, it is, those are two, you know, if you can only take away two things besides all the tips around resilience and confidence, do that. Hold the, hold the moment and treat it as a conversation and I think your butterflies probably you know it's about peak performance and that you were getting ready to peak perform and yes. you know, what just out of interest because you did mention that other people might want to use them what did you do those, what were those two stress reduction techniques you did that calmed you down 
So the one is, you're absolutely right around, I did spend a lot of time saying that this is, these are not nerves time. this means a lot to me, I'm really excited. Yeah. Two other things I did was I flipped over a piece of paper I had on the desk and I just labeled the emotions I was feeling. Okay. And then I labeled the opposite. So I wrote down nervous and then I wrote excited. Yeah. Um, and then I wrote other things that I was feeling and then just some little mantras that I'd had going over my head that I'd spent some time visualizing, going into it. So just the act of writing down what I was feeling and labeling it reduces the emotion. And we know that because it's been proved in brain scans and that helped. And then at the time I was doing something called the four square breathing technique, which is great because you can do it and no one even know you're doing it. And that's literally breathe in for a count of four seconds. So you fill up your chest, hold that for four seconds, breathe out for four seconds, hold that empty chest again for four seconds and breathe in for four. So by the time you've gone through the four square, four, 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 in, hold, out, hold, in, by the time you've done that two or three times, it really lowers your stress levels down and makes you a lot calmer. Brilliant. So those two things, labeling the emotions, writing down a little mantra, being aware of how I was feeling, labeling it, and four square meant that I got up on stage and, and, uh, and the, the, the excitement levels, the butterflies were flying in formation as opposed to dive bombing, which is what we were. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely, that's really cool and brilliant. So before I go on to my standard questions, as you know, you, mm. you've, got a, you've got a head start over every, everyone else who comes on the show that doesn't listen. Do you know what they are? Um, when is the new book coming out and what's it called again? Uh, it's called Tips from the Top, How to Successfully Navigate Middle Management. And uh, if I pull my finger out, stop procrastinating, <laughs> um, I'm hoping to get it out about October time. The publisher is literally waiting on me, um, so I need to get things sorted out. So that's one of my main tasks for July. I've got a few workshops to deliver, and then I'm not going to do anything else. I just want to get the book done and, and over to them. So about October time, I'd imagine. Brilliant. Well, I'm going to talk to you in a little bit about where people can get hold of you. Um, so first of all, now, I guess... I don't know. We've probably covered your best speaking experience was probably last week. I don't know. Definitely in terms of from a commercial point of view. Yes, yeah. it was. Absolutely. Is yeah. there another one? It seems like there's, there's one there. You're... I once had to do an off the cup. I was, I was asked at, uh, uh, an ex-girlfriend's wedding from me oh. to a talk, literally with about three minutes notice. And that went down quite well. So, oh, yeah. yeah. So a bit competition there. And have you got a worst gig or worst speaking experience you can remember? And why was it? Oh, cracky, worst one. I did one for an organisation not that long ago. And the content was very similar. They, they hired me based on, they'd seen me speak at another event. And they said, well, the same content, just the content just a little bit longer. And so I did that and it seemed to go really well. I was quite happy. I said I'd give myself an eight out of 10 for it. And the client never came back to me in terms of how did it go? Give me some feedback, radio silence. And I asked three times to say, hey, look, you know, if I've missed the mark and let you down, you need to let me out of whatever I can to fix this. Then, and they just refused to ever even acknowledge any emails or... Weird. I even rang them up about three months later and said, look, I'm really concerned. I've, I've somehow let you down or what, needs, what can I do to fix this? Uh, right, I'm a bit busy now. From my point of view, it was everything they asked me to deliver. They'd seen what I delivered before, but they just, uh, yeah. Gosh. Odd. Yeah. So I'd say to people there, the lesson for me is that comes back to your own self-belief and your own identity. You know, that's, I've delivered something they've asked me to deliver and they've seen it before. I don't know what's going on at their end, but I refuse to allow that to down my confidence. I would say that's a real test of your role 
versus identity. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And that's well, that, that, you know, that's their prerogative. But I'm not going to allow. You know, I only gave myself an eight out of ten. Could have been better, but that's because I'm a taskmaster, hard, hard on myself. Thank you for sharing that. And okay, next question: What is your favourite book, and why? What's what's had the biggest impact on you? God, I've read, I read so much now. And it didn't used to be for years and years and years. And then about the time I changed career, I started to read and I read and listen to podcasts to my ears bleed. I'm going to go back to one which changed the way I thought and led or managed people really early in my career, which was a book called Maverick by a guy called Ricardo Semler. And it was about how he ran his semiconductor business in Brazil along the typical hierarchical command and control type structure. And then he got really poorly. And as he was convalescing, and I think there's a word we've forgotten the meaning of in today's society, convalescing. As he was convalescing, he thought, you know, I need to do something differently. And over a period of time, he morphed to a much flatter structure where he devolved an awful lot of power and decision-making right down to the employees, the frontline guys, to the point where he didn't have, you know, have his own office. They set their own salaries, they decided on the hours, they decided on how they're going to run things, and he watched productivity and profitability just take off. Wow. And this is a book, I think it's probably written back in the 80s, early 90s, but that had a fundamental uh, impact on me as a young manager coming into my role age 24, 25, that kind of age. Um, and it really, maybe a little bit older, but it really had a big impact on me. I've read a ton of fantastic books, but I keep coming back to that one. Cool. I have heard of it before. I haven't actually read it, though. I shall have to put it on the list to check out. Okay, and what's the best bit of business advice you've had and why? Best bit of business advice? Ooh. As someone who's in a very crowded marketplace place as a coach and trainer, get absolutely clear about your niche. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, I fought it and I've tried it and then I fought it and I've tried it. and You know, and I've probably wasted a good few years. You know, so just get really clear on the niche and it will go against every fan with your being. You'll think, I'm going to lose out on business. But the, the irony is, and I heard this a dozen times, but it still didn't sink in. The irony is, the more you niche, the more you'll actually get asked to do other things. If you start out as a generalist, you will struggle. Yeah. And I've got a friend who is, she just coaches women over 40 that are late bloomers in their career. And that's her niche. And she actually gets asked to do lots of other things. I focus just on the mental toughness, the resilience and the, and the mental health. But I'm always being asked to do other stuff. That allows me to then decide, am I the best person to do that? Do I want to? Can I? Or actually, no, I'll go and get an associate and to deliver it. Um, but the more you niche and the more you get clarity on the niche, the easier everything is in terms of your marketing, what you're going to say, how you're going to present yourself, how you pitch yourself and what you'll, you'll deliver. Absolutely. It is something. And what I always say, it's very difficult to become an expert or an authority if you're trying either to appeal to too many people or to have too broad a, a remit. It just won't happen. And absolutely right. It doesn't mean that if you specialize, if you niche, that other people aren't going to come to you. Obviously, with my marketing hat on, there's a great company called Tens. Uh, they make sunglasses. Right. I always tell people to go and check their website out. They've got like an origin story video, which is only 77 seconds long. And it's sort of how they came to be and create the sunglasses. And everything in that video is targeted at millennials. 
Like there's mm. no one, there's no middle-aged person there, nothing. And it's yeah. you know all about adventure. But I've got a pair of tens, <laughs> you know, because even though I'm not their target demographic, it appeals to me. But yeah. it very clearly is talking to a specific person. So it yes. doesn't mean other people aren't going to find you. It just you've got to it's a bit like the confidence thing you've got to do it yes and and then you know trust that it will work brilliant thank you for sharing that's really important last one if you could choose anyone alive or dead fictional or non-fictional to be your mentor who would you choose and why one person yes just the mm. one Crikey, I'm sure didn't you used to ask for three? Yeah, did you used to ask for ask me? Can't have any three. <laughs> you can, oh, since you're a long term listener, go on then, Anthony. <laughs> you can have uh, three. Three, right. I one would have to be my mom, just because she's not with us anymore, but she knew me so well and yeah. she could be my toughest critic and my biggest supporter. So she will be good. Zig Ziglar. Cool. Yeah. He's unfortunately no longer with us as well, but I just think the man's a legend. I've just finished listening to his uh, See You at the Top thing again. And I think his insight, his wisdom, he was telling stories that resonate still today and have real value. And the, the style and the passion which he did it, if I could be half the speaker he is, yeah. um, then I'll consider myself to be very good. And I'll stop at two, so that seems good. <laughs> okay, cool. Well, Anthony, Thank you so much for sharing everything that you do in terms of resilience and confidence and mental toughness. And also thank you for being open about your, your sort of journey and how you felt with this speaking. It's really, I think it's really going to help people find to be sort of nervous, even though with your experience you were, but good things come if you just take action and move forward. That's really cool. So how can people find out more about if they want to book you to speak or if they want to find out more about the book, where should they go? couple of places I spend far too much time on LinkedIn, so that's always a good place to get me on LinkedIn. Uh, Anthony Taylor 2, I think, is the is the URL. Uh-huh. Uh, somebody got there before me, I need to find out who and, uh, and bribe him. Presumably Anthony Taylor. Presumably Anthony Taylor, yeah, I don't know who, but I need to look that up. Uh, so LinkedIn's a great place, first and foremost. Oh, I do have a website that's almost complete, but not quite, and that's um, 359.com. So 3 and 50 are the words, 9 is the digit. That's pretty cool. What's the story behind that? It relates to Roger Bannister breaking the four minute mile. And the reason I like that is it's around, you know, he was back in the day when junior doctors worked 80, 100 hour weeks, not like today. Um, I'm not knocking them because all my family are medics, but, um, and he was still doing that and he could only train for less than an hour a day. And one of the biggest things he said helped him do that sub four minute mile was the belief that he could do it. And then, of course, when he'd done it, he changed the mindset of the whole world. Yeah. So because a lot of what I do is around mindset and resilience and sticking to your goals, that mental toughness piece, that's why I chose that name. Fantastic. That's really cool. 359.com. Yes. Smashing. Excellent. Well, go and check that out. Go and connect with Anthony on LinkedIn. Are you on Twitter or Facebook as well? I am on Twitter. Uh, Taylor 72 on Twitter. Um, I don't seem to go on Twitter a lot, if I'm being honest. Mm-hmm. Um, my LinkedIn posts go to Twitter, but I don't spend much time there. It's really just on LinkedIn. No worries. Cool, but they'll find you there. Brilliant. Anthony, thank you so much for sharing again and for giving me your time. Good luck with the speaking. Thanks for having me, Sarah. It's been a lot of fun. You're welcome. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that interview and you got lots of great tips for developing your mental toughness and for upping your public speaking game. And if you wanted to 
get some coaching from me, just like Anthony did, then you can head over to saraharcher.co.uk and there's an option there to have a call to talk about some one-to-one coaching and see if it's suitable for you and we're a good fit, etc., etc. And I'm also going to be launching my Sensational Speaker online course very soon. But it is only going to be for a limited period, the first launch. So you can find out more about both over at saraharcher.co.uk, as I've said. And But if you want to get on the waiting list for the online course, if that's the one for you, then go over to thespeakingclub.com slash speaking course and you can get your name on the list to get notified as soon as it becomes available. Well, that's it. Thank you so much for listening wherever you're doing so, whether you're walking the dog, at the gym, at work. I really appreciate you choosing this podcast and me to help you move forward with your public speaking. And if you do get value from the show, then I really appreciate an honest rating review wherever you're listening right now. And if you get the chance, come and say hi to me, Sarah Archer 15 on Instagram and Twitter, and go and check out Anthony's site, look out for the book, and I'm sure he'd love it if you went and said hi to him too. Lastly, all that's left for me to say is, don't forget to go out and grab your life by the nuts and get cracking. Thanks for listening to the Speaking Club podcast at www.saraharcher.co.uk.